Welcome to the 29th episode of Tokenizing Everything, our weekly interview series with thought leaders in the blockchain industry. Today's guest is John O'Connor, Director of African Operations at Input Output, or short IOHK, one of the facilitators in the Cardano community. Before we begin, I have to mention that all opinions are solely personal and do not reflect the opinion of Amazing Blocks, IOHK, or any other involved parties. So it's a pleasure to have you here today, John. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm glad you did that disclaimer, which means our media and comms team can't be angry if I say anything they don't want to hear. <laughs> yeah, it's always crucial to mention this, right? Especially in the sure. to, yeah. Crucial to cover, cover up Max. So thanks for that. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I also see you have a, a beautiful background being in the nature. It's uh, definitely a, a, a nice play, uh, space to work on. Could, yeah, could you elaborate where you are at the moment? Yeah, this is this is actually you've got my garden in the background. Uh, so yeah, it's because my power is actually gone in one of one of the the many electricity cuts. So the room I'd normally do this stuff from, uh, yeah, it's a bit dark. So anyway, we we're doing it in the garden. Um, we should probably get going whilst I still have light. It's uh, it's coming down to sun now. Oh good, yeah, that sounds perfect. I mean, I've never had a guest do it from the garden, so. I, it's definitely a, you're a pioneer on that regard as well. So would you maybe like to start by just giving a, a brief intro about who you are and, um, you know, how your path was so far in the blockchain space? Sure. Uh, so I'm John O'Connor. I am the uh, director of the African operations for Input Output. So I set up the Africa business for Input Output Cardano three years ago. Uh, I moved to Ethiopia. My heritage, I'm half Irish, half Ethiopian. I was born and raised in London in the UK, went to university there. Um, but, you know, my interest was always around the financial inclusion possibilities of blockchain. So after starting off in the foundation, uh, I then moved to Input Output to set up this vehicle, basically, and really tried to find the use cases for blockchain that everyone sort of thinks they know about, but, you know, be on the ground, really understand what's required, and then feed that back into Input Output so that we can develop you know, better products and make sure that Cardano actually achieves what we think it's uh, been designed to achieve. Perfect. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so, you know, people always describe a certain, you know, wow moment that really kicked it off for them in the blockchain yeah. space. Could you maybe elaborate on this? What, what was this moment for you where you realized, okay, I want to go all yeah. in, in the blockchain space? The, the eureka moment, yeah. Everyone's got one. It's funny. It's one of those things that really is, really is ubiquitous. So I, my wow moment, it was probably around six years ago. So I'd been reading about blockchain. Um, I sort of got it. I read through the Bitcoin white paper and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Um, but it never really clicked for me in terms of how disruptive this could be for emerging economies until I actually saw a video by Charles. So Charles had done this uh, TEDx talk, um, maybe Bermuda, I can't quite remember where, but anyway, it's online, uh, you can find it. It's one of his earliest talks where he basically walked through what blockchain could do uh, for you know, someone in an emerging market. So let's say the example wasn't for a smallholder farmer, but that, that's what it was about. You know, what would happen if we could combine identity uh, along with you know, the power of sort of fast payments and credit and how blockchain could actually achieve all of these better than you know your legacy classical financial systems, and that's what really made it click for me. You know, I'd studied economics at university, uh, developing markets as uh, part of the course, and I suddenly saw how it could all come together, and how actually very quickly we could be offering a tool set around finance which people in emerging economies simply do not have. 
it's too expensive to bank these kind of people, right? The ROI isn't in it. And as a result, they just don't have these, these banking solutions. And I suddenly saw how this technology could change that dynamic and start to offer these things at a fraction of the cost of traditional financial apparatus. And that's where it just blew my mind. I suddenly realized that we could bring on billions of people uh, into you know, financial inclusion through this technology. And I saw a route towards that. It wasn't like, a, oh, maybe in sort of 50 years, you know, it was on a sort of five-year timescale, right? And that, that, that was obviously incredibly appealing for me. So I jumped all in. Um, yeah, I've been with the Cardano team since before we even raised uh, and have, uh, yeah, been there ever since. Yeah, very amazing. I think, you know, that Eureka moment is always different for everyone, but it's always kind of the same core principles that, that bring someone to the space. I mean, for me, it was a, a similar vision on, on that regard. So also what, what um, I read from your, you know, uh, post um, that the topic of transparency is really crucial to you. Could you maybe give us some examples as to where, you know, the transparency features of blockchain actually have the biggest impact in the future? Yeah, so what I'll actually do is give an example from something that, you know, we've actually done. Uh, you know, there's a billion different examples of blockchain technology. Sometimes it's instructive to focus on a single one and allow people to sort of have that own eureka moment of how it can apply to their own field of expertise. But what we've done here in Ethiopia, um, you know, issuing 5 million identities across the education system, there's a real challenge in Ethiopia, which is fake degrees. Uh, everyone you meet, uh, actually this, is, this applies across the continent, Everyone's a doctor, uh, and then you might ask them about their actual experience in the subject they have a doctorate, and you'll realize they're a doctor and they can't draw you know, an aggregate demand curve. And uh, this is a challenge, right? It creates many problems for employers. You can't, you can't feel sure about people when you hire them. So what we've done here is you know, stick academic credentials and stick these verifiable credentials onto the blockchain. So from a student's perspective, this means that if their university closes, um, if their university basically has a turnover of administrative staff, so they no longer want to communicate with all students and give them the validation that they've actually gone to that university, it doesn't matter, right? With these digitally signed credentials, you can prove your achievements even in the case of a failed university, even in the case of, um, uh, of the administrative staff not coming back to you. So, you know, what we've done is inverted the relationship over who controls your identity, which typically is someone other than you, even though it's about you. And we brought it back towards the individual and enabled them to actually prove their achievements and prove the value of their own hard work. So to me, this is a great example of the transparency we can bring to the system. And this can shred through, you know, fraud and, uh, you know, some of the other challenges which we see on the continent. So it's a small example, but it's something that's useful. It's something that we're actually doing right now this year. And for me, that makes it quite special. Yeah, definitely. And I would, I would say it's, it's not just a small example, right? It, it's huge. I would say it really brings a value to blockchain where I also read that you, you collaborate with the government, right? This is really a huge impact that this will have, you know, that other chains, I would say, cannot necessarily say to for themselves. So can you maybe guide us through this, this process of how you achieve sure. this, this goal? I mean, the challenges along the way, the obstacles, maybe some, some you, know, you know, major steps that were needed to take on that regard. Could you just maybe explain sure. the history around this? Yeah, so this has been a, essentially a three-year deal. Um, you know, I've been working on educating government officials here since I moved here three years ago about, you know, what the value of the technology was. And actually, initially, I was looking at payment use cases. 
that's very tricky in Ethiopia. Um, you know, the national bank and the regulation makes that that space is, is fairly protected and difficult to enter into. And then I realized that identity is actually a bigger problem, right? Um, and uh, it's foundational before you even start thinking about this kind of thing. So what I did is I think I found a problem which people were facing and which our solution could uniquely solve. I've explained how our solution gives uh, resistance against universities closing, against fake credentialing. But the other side of this is actually we're digitizing uh, a manual process. So up to this point, the Ministry of Education has almost no information on how people are performing except for their high school exams at the very end of their high school career. So the Ministry of Education is one of the better funded ministries in Ethiopia, but they have very little clue about how efficient their money is, like you know, where they're spending it, whether it's having an impact or not. So by implementing this system, suddenly the ministry has visibility on educational outcomes, which it never had before. So from a, from a perspective of how appealing is our technological solution, from the ministry's perspective, forgetting about the blockchain part, this is a huge value add. Suddenly they have visibility. And then you add on the blockchain component and how it solves a couple of particular issues around, as they say, fake degrees and universities closing or universities not responding. And together, it was a very powerful combination. And I think that that's the reason what sort of pushed this across the line. And yeah, it's, it's a, I think it's a big line. You know, this will be uh, a government-approved identity, which is done on you know, the Cardano platform um, for 5 million users. So yeah, it's one of, I think, you know, by users, it might even be the biggest blockchain implementation done. And I think that the fact that it's a sort of approved identity solution also speaks volumes. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, generally the, the topic of identity on chain is, is becoming increasingly relevant and uh, will be a major part in terms of fostering mainstream adoption for the blockchain space in general. So after the, this achievement, have you had, uh, and maybe you cannot talk about it, but were there other governments that kind of contacted you or generally IOHK about this and, hey, we want to do yeah. this as well? or? Yeah, I mean, uh, so I'm speaking to uh, four other governments in Africa, actually, about uh, using the same solution. And I have to say, it's nice for a change rather than knocking on people's doors to have them knock on yours. Uh, <laughs> it makes for a very, very welcome change. So, no, that's been really exciting. I think one of the challenges our industry faces is that when you can do anything, you do nothing, right? Blockchain can solve anything. We can blockchain this, we can blockchain that. And actually, that lack of specificity makes it quite difficult for senior government officials and stakeholders to really understand how it fits into their lives. So what I did with education here was I made it very specific. And actually, rather than selling blockchain, I saw the solution, right? So look, this is actually the problems that I'm solving for you. These are problems you're telling me you're facing. Forget about what's under the hood, right? Um, and they, of course, they fully understood what's under the hood, but that wasn't the point of the sale. I also make this comment that people in our industry, you know, it's like we're estate agents and we're trying to sell the house by talking about the plumbing. Who's got like the biggest pipes, uh, mine are the shiniest pipes that are made from this material rather than Ethereum, which uses that material. And that's not really what it should be about. You know, people, people don't really care about that when you're talking about government officials. They care about whether you're solving their problem. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, what we've done here. You know, we've solved a real, a real need. Yeah, definitely. I think generally we should signal out more the utility of the blockchain, the impact that it will have, and also have the UI generally more intuitive, right, uh, to actually foster the mainstream adoption, because I'm not sure if uh, most people will, will use the current infrastructures and 
user experiences that are in place in the future. And I always compare it similar to the internet. Obviously, that's a common stigma in the blockchain space where if you ask people on the street, can you explain me the internet? They will also not be able to explain it to you, but you know, they just use it all day, every day. So it will be kind of a similar approach. Uh, yeah, we're fully aligned on that regard, I think. So generally, you know, Africa as a continent is always seen as a, as a flagship for blockchain adoption. You know, the adoption there is, is much more advanced than in other jurisdictions or regions in general. How, why do you think um, that is the case? Why do you believe that Africa is really, you know, much, much further along in many cases in terms of blockchain adoption? I think that you've got a couple of factors going on here. One is that you've got very, very young populations, right? You know, it's like 75%, I think, in Ethiopia under the age of 30. And that's actually a demographic which you see commonly across the continent. So you've got young people who are very willing to embrace new technology. Um, the second thing, uh, the second argument which plays in here is that there's a lot of things missing, right? <laughs> the reason why M-Pesa um, became the world's first and most successful mobile money service in Kenya was because people struggled to transfer value, right? Uh, so M-Pesa was actually started as a, a different NGO project. It wasn't really about mobile money, but they built this solution in order to be able to achieve the goals of that initial project. Suddenly they realized they were really onto something. Um, you know, people needed to transfer value. And using phone credit as that mechanism makes perfect sense. Uh, so the adoption there was absolutely crazy. I mean, I think at the moment, something like 80% of um, all transactions in the economy in Kenya go through in PESA. I remember being blown away in London when uh, there was still no mobile money solutions. This was, I don't know, seven years back. And then reading about how in Kenya, everyone was using mobile money and it was de facto. Um, so yeah, I think people are often surprised by the fact that adoption can happen much faster in Africa, but you've just got to look at that mobile money example to, to see the possibilities. And one other fact is that, you know, there's more, more digital wallets in uh, Africa than in any other continent. So yeah, I think this foundation makes it a very good play actually for innovative technologies and for that distribution. Yeah, generally the transitionary phase right from the legacy systems is, is much more frictionless, I would say, here in the in the Western world. Uh, we are also so, you know, used to our typical bank accounts and everything and then uh, this transition is harder, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely amazing to see what is happening and shout out to the entire Cardano ecosystem at this stage as well that you guys are really actively focusing on this and fostering the adoption all across Africa where it's really much needed. Um, the impact of this technology. So let's speak a bit um, generally about the Cardano ecosystem where you've been with, as you mentioned, you know, since day one. Why, what made you initially start with, with you know, becoming a part of that uh, you know, Cardano family, the IOHK gang, as you, mm. as you mentioned it, right? What was that kind of uh, moment or generally how was that history on that regard? Yeah, so um, you know, I had about a job opportunity when I was in London and that was actually based with the foundation. There were only two people there uh, at the foundation at the time, just the chairman and uh, a CFO. And I think that uh, they needed someone who'd been in you know, the tech industry who could maybe do a lot of the, the work, shall we call it. Um, so I just and, you know, uh, did a lot of the initial work around that, setting up our communities. Uh, you know, I'm still you know, the admin of some of these communities. I also did, uh, you know, the first exchange negotiation with Bittrex to get us listed there. You know, I went to Japan when we were doing the raise. So at that time, it was a really varied role, um, doing a lot of the interaction actually between the Cardano Foundation and Input Output. 
Um, and the role of the foundation um, wasn't super clear back then. It was about governance, uh, how, how uh, you know, the Swiss foundation could promote good governance, um, could maybe give some ideas about how the protocol should evolve. And whilst that was interesting, um, it wasn't quite, uh, shall we say, at the right sort of cutting edge of what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to be figuring out what are the adoption stories? How do we get there? How do we get there faster than, you know, if I'm not doing something? And for me, you know, that involved making a bit of a shift. The Cardano Foundation, I think at that time, uh, wasn't uh, the right place to be able to do that shift. So, you know, I shifted over to Input-Output. Uh, I'd already pitched Charles on the idea of having, you know, an African-focused team and entity to be able to really understand what the problems were and to create that direct linkage back with our product teams. So we weren't developing from an ivory tower, but we're actually developing real business cases, which might be gathering across the continent so that we were building the right protocol for our stated aims, which is, you know, creating economic identity for those people who don't have it. So if you're not speaking to those people, how are you going to do it? Um, that was the reason why I set up the African entity, why I shifted over to Input Output, why I moved from London to Ethiopia. <laughs> so yeah, that's it. Yeah, definitely. And I think now they really, you know, things are coming to fruition and uh, one can really see that uh, you made the right decision to pitch it to Charles back then, right? Uh, so props yeah. to you at, at, at this point. So maybe generally you mentioned, you know, already um, there's the Cardano Foundation, there's IOHK, there's Imurgo. Can you maybe share some insights as to, you know, what now the role of these different participants is in, that, in the Cardano ecosystem? Yeah. Um, so I think that the, the reason why the Cardano ecosystem has always been a bit weird is because, you know, Charles, Charles really was the, you know, the brains behind the protocol. And, you know, he's the CEO of Empire Alpha. But Charles realized at the beginning that in order for things to be sustainable and to outlive a single person, that there needed to be other entities in this. Um, so as a result, you know, he seeded and created the, uh, the Cardano Foundation. And actually, I think that over time, the Cardano Foundation's role will grow. Um, you know, there will, there will come a point where Emperor Alpha may not necessarily be the prime development company behind Cardano. That will be the community's decision. And when that's, you know, uh, a possibility, then of course you want some sort of independent entity to be able to guide, um, to be able to give opinions on which direction things should be going. So whilst at the moment input output is beyond central to, uh, you know, the development of Cardano, the fact that in the future that may not be the case necessitates the existence of an entity like the Cardano Foundation. And that's a role which I'm expecting them to carry on growing into. Then you have Emergo. So Amago was originally seeded in order to be a venture capital entity, which would invest into the Cardano ecosystem. I think Amago has been waiting for the delivery of smart contracts um, before they're going to really start investing in these kinds of activities. But in general, you know, that role is always meant to be quite loose. Um, so I do expect them to be you know, participating in a greater and increasing way going forward into the future. But that doesn't mean that they're the only people that can do venture capital. As you see, you know, we've kicked off this Catalyst program, which has been immensely successful. I believe it's now the world's largest decentralized fund. I'm also looking at creating specific venture capital entities to support African activity. So, you know, whilst, you know, we all do slightly different things and have different remits, that doesn't mean they're super well-defined. And I think that that's a good thing. You know, it allows there to be flexibility within the ecosystem, it enables anyone who thinks they can drive value to be able to do so. 
and I think that we're all quite comfortable with those roles. So um, yeah, that's that's sort of the structure. Yeah, definitely, and it also kind of allows the different respective entities to kind of keep each other in check as well, which is I think crucial. Usually, a lot of these uh, protocols and chains generally they have one entity, which could be a foundation. Um, and while the foundation is autonomously governed, right, but there's still kind of some human power behind it. And, uh, you know, actually different entities allow a much more decentralized approach also from the entity perspective, right, not just from the technology side in general. So also something that, you know, I, I really, you know, enjoyed seeing is, is your partnership with Singularity Net. I mean, um, little disclaimer, no financial advice. So I've been following Singularity Net also since uh, the very early days and I'm a big fan of them. Could you maybe elaborate on the, the respective yeah. partnership and um, the auspicious kind of, uh, yeah, hard fork they did to also be compatible with two, two chains, Ethereum and Cardano? Yeah, I mean, uh, for anyone that's met Ben Gutzel or, you know, uh, spoken to him, you know, he's a brilliant man. And, uh, you know, I suppose he shares that sort of particular blend of genius actually with Charles. Uh, so as a, a good fit there, I would say. And uh, yeah, I think that we've realized that a lot of the applications that we're doing will need to have in some way, shape or form, you know, an AI component or an AI brain. And you know that famous post about, you know, how software eats the world. Um, I expect at some stage, you know, AI will eat the world. And there's a whole bunch of challenges, particularly in Africa, where that sort of technology is uniquely positioned to be able to drive change. Um, let me give the example of credit scoring. So if we're looking at a typical credit scoring model in the UK, uh, they've got a whole host of information about me which they can use to make a loan decision. You know, I'm going through the PAYE system. My tax is automatically deducted. I can show payslips from this and prove some of my income. I can also show them the deeds towards a property if I own it or several other assets which I can use to collateralize or, or you know, give, give proof to the fact that I have a certain amount of wealth. In Africa, this isn't the case. So we're talking about um, a whole set of people who do have enough income to be able to take small loans. And the loan amounts might be, you know, $10. But actually, the difficulty is proving that I'm going to repay that. So typically, I'm referring to an uncollateralized loan scenario with this. So how do I start to make a decision about whether someone is likely to repay a loan or not? So what we do is we take in lots of different types of unconventional data. Some of this is, this is a very emerging field. Uh, you know, some of this might be about you know, the type of uh, language which I use when I type. It might be about whether I'm topping up my phone credit regularly, um, you know, every week, every two weeks. Um, you know, it could be whether I've got a university degree. But anyway, the whole point here is that there's a suite of different types of information. And I see a great role in AI being able to pass this information and being able to give me a useful and accurate credit score, which can be associated with my identity. And then together, I can then look for finance from some of the crypto liquidity, which we've got on Cardano or on other chains. So the more that we have these types of tools with AI and singularity now, I think the better job we can do in accomplishing our stated aim of financial inclusion. So that's for me where singularity net fits. Um, completely serendipitously, uh, they actually have a team in Ethiopia. Is uh, in Ethiopia lover, you know, he's been to Ethiopia lots and lots of times. Uh, he has a team here with Icog Labs. So for me, it was a natural partnership. We're partnering internationally. It's also co-located an office space. It's make sure we're understanding what each other are doing and figuring out ways for us to fit in.
And I think the credit markets and credit scoring is one potential application. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, one of the things that made me excited about uh, Singularity Net back in, I think it was 2017, was when I listened to a podcast of Ben and he was speaking about how, you know, he was giving the example about Ethiopian AI developers that do not have yeah. access to this market, right? Maybe you, you, read, uh, you heard the same interview, right? And where he was speaking about it and they do not have the chance to work for the big tech companies that are usually fostering AI development. That was really the point where I was okay. You know, it's not just some AI project. I mean, we all know AI is going to have a big impact in the future, but they also understand the impact and they actually leverage the impact quite well that AI will have and provide everyone access to this, not just maybe the ones that have the most money, right? But the ones that are the most dedicated and, and also, you know, deserve it to be part of this ecosystem. So yeah, very auspicious partnership and I will definitely closely follow it in, in the next months and years. Um, so maybe um, before we kind of dive into a bit the tokenization part of the, the interview, one last question is um, what is next for LHK and Cardano in general in Africa? Uh, a lot is the answer. So, uh, you know, as I say, we're looking at uh, a suite of other government level deals and um, particularly focused in the in the uh, identity space. Uh, we've done this partnership with Well Mobile, who towards the end of the year will be launching their new telecoms network in Zanzibar. We expect to have 100,000 customers uh, from that from that partnership, telco customers, all using Atala identities. And for me, the real opportunity with that, um, with that partnership is we can start to connect this liquidity on Cardano for doing these uncollateralized loans that I keep banging on about. So with the identity information, which we have, and with these you know, top-up information coming from this telco play, we can start to model the credit risk and start to build the interconnectors to enable people you know, in the Cardano ecosystem, ADA holders, to be able to have access to real-world lending opportunities with a high-yielding, but still massively reducing the interest rate that people in Tanzania and Zanzibar have to pay and basically matching that together. So a lot of the loan opportunities which people have in Zanzibar, Ethiopia, or Kenya, we would classify them as payday loan scenarios in the UK, right? They're extortion. But the fact that that is what the market currently looks like provides the opportunity to massively reduce the interest rates, but still offer a fantastic return towards your person in the US or the UK. So while mobile will be one of the first places that we do that. In addition to that, I'm looking at some other opportunities for SME financing through the chain uh, in Kenya. Um, we're looking at potentially building up an MFI of the future, a microfinance institution of the future to be able to further push down this line. But I've also got a whole, a whole bunch of other lines of interest. Um, you know, we're talking to telco operators uh, using our identity solution for KYC and SIM registration. Um, we're, uh, we're looking at you know, setting up offices across our five focus countries, of Ghana, Tanzania, um, South Africa, Nigeria, and uh, Kenya. Uh, so there's a, there's a whole bunch of work going on. Um, I think that we've really passed the credibility test with our project in Ethiopia. So now it's really about expanding from that um, and you know furthering the distribution of Cardano and bringing more people across Africa into into the platform. Yeah, very exciting and um, yeah, good luck to you guys on on that endeavor. I will definitely, uh, uh, yeah, closely follow that as well. So, you know, before really diving into the tokenization part, um, I just quickly have the weekly Be in Crypto special question where the community of the Be in Crypto news outlet asks, you know, one specific question to the guest. This week's question was, 
what mainly differentiates Cardano from other blockchains like Ethereum? I mean, I know you probably have had to answer this question quite often, but uh, just maybe sure. just in the broad overview. Um, I think that, you know, there's many different parts of it. I think a lot of it stems from the philosophical approach, which was how research lab we were. You know, we've got partnerships at this stage with, you know, 10 universities across the world. Uh, you know, Wyoming, Oxford, uh, Tokyo Tech, uh, Edinburgh, um, I think we're adding Stanford and uh, I think potentially Princeton. Anyway, I can never keep track of this because it keeps growing. But the fact that we start with academic research and then after that's been peer reviewed, push that into an engineering pipeline and then commercialized product does differentiate us. Um, of course, it means we're slower to market, but it also means hopefully that we made better decisions in that uh, seed stage. And I think that for me, that, that's the right approach. I'm sure everyone's aware of the challenges which Ethereum is facing moving towards proof of stake. And they're not challenges because the Ethereum, the Ethereum development community is talented. They're fantastically talented. They're challenges because the starting point makes it very difficult to reach the outcome that they're looking for. So Cardano, I think, by starting from this research focus, um, enables us to have a better sort of seed, um, which hopefully will mean that our ongoing development roadmap will be less challenging. So that's what I think it's about. I think it was a slight difference of philosophy, which I think enables Cardano to be faster in the long run, which people may find ironic because uh, they may think that we're slow. But you know, for me, you always need to be thinking about the long run, right? We're well capitalized enough to be able to get to that long run outcome. So as a result, we should have long-term visions and long-term aspirations. And I think our research library map actually enables us to, to get there faster than um, some of the other people in this space. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you're already proving it with real-world implementations of blockchain that actually have an impact on the whole country and education, right, which is really the key to everything, so to say. So, I mean, it, it's always or it's sometimes really better to do gradual, but the right steps than just rushing to market, right? Um, so, yeah, maybe like uh, quickly about the, the tokenization topic, you know, in terms of the Cardano ecosystem, obviously, Cardano will undergo the Alonso hard fork, um, I think, right? It's in one month, uh, approximately. Uh, what is the roadmap there? How, how will Cardano approach, or, sorry, address reward asset tokenization? Yeah, so the magic is, of course, about a platform that it's sort of up for the community to decide that, right? You know, it just depends on the, the use cases that they decide to build for. You know, obviously for me, I'm sort of envisioning a world where you know, crazy assets end up tokenized. I would like to see a smallholder farmer be able to tokenize his cow in order to be able to raise finance. You know, that for me would be unlocking huge amounts of wealth and enabling, you know, farmers to be able to expand their plot holdings and grow from that. So it's these sort of weird assets that I'm really interested in, in seeing being tokenized. I don't think that will happen quickly. Honestly, I think that we're more likely to see efforts to tokenize asset classes that people are used to, you know, real estate and, and things like that. Um, you know, I've been approached by companies looking to tokenize uh, gas reserves. Uh, I've been approached by companies that want to tokenize diamond mines. Uh, you know, there's really an unlimited spectrum of possibilities. The real question is, you know, what's the space we can play in because of various different regulatory risks and concerns? Um, you know, I think back when the crypto community was at the view, you know, F the police, right? Who cares, right? Just do it anyway. And I've actually been quite glad to see the industry evolve a bit more 
become a bit more mature to say, okay, if we really want this to be big, then we have to understand what parts of the regulation that we do have to think about, right? And, and engage with. And yeah, sure, we can skip out on that, but that will never allow us to get as big as an industry as I think we could be at. So yeah, I think that, you know, that positive engagement on the regulatory side is good. Um, and I expect to see that play out with a whole bunch of, you know, blockchain tokenization projects, which are actually still operating within the regulatory framework. The other side of it is I'm starting to see regulators actually listen and, you know, start to shift the other way and create the opportunities and the sandbox environments that we need to be able to deliver these innovative forms of technology. But that's sort of my view of the industry and where we're going. I think there'll be a sort of convergence as regulators come to best understand the industry best comes to understand regulators. And of course, there's always going to be some frictions. Any disruptive technology has that. I'd be worried if there weren't. Um, but uh, I think there will be eventually a meeting of the minds. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's funny to see that you mentioned, you know, that convergence, right, between defense. That's actually what, uh, you know, your friend Darren, who I had also on the yeah. show, he was also talking about that uh, specific uh, degree of convergence that will happen, which is when actually the true potential of blockchain will will emerge right so it's yeah. it, it's great to see that the cardano community is aligned on on that regard um, um, so i maybe, mean uh, uh, just on that you know quick shout out i'm just launching a new pro a new project called ipor and for me that's a really good example you know he's taking traditional um traditional finance uh, ideas and applying them in a way to bring uh, a lot of value to cryptocurrencies and towards the blockchain space um, but you know he started by thinking about how things are done before thinking about what DeFi looks like and you know trying to converge so anyway i'm not surprised you was talking about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely i also checked it out already it really looks very interesting so also for my side a, a big shout out in that regard so uh, maybe just quickly what what to you personally is maybe your favorite and most feasible tokenization use case it can be reward asset tokenization it could be also something different like data tokenization what is it to you that excites you the most i'm going to go back to the cow example and i'm going to give you a, a specific reason so i think this was in sudan where um the whole bunch of the ngo communities uh looked at it and they were like wow everyone holds castle so the real way to deliver economic growth is by increasing, you know, cattle productivity. So let's train farmers how to better use their cattle and, and all of the rest of this. Anyway, mobile money launches and suddenly all of the farmers are selling their cattle. They never wanted to own the cattle in order to be herdsmen. They were just using it as a store of value, right? And uh, this, this, I think, is a really interesting example, right? If we could have tokenized those cows, way back when, even before mobile money, right? Then there would have been value towards it. So for me, I think the power of tokenization is just realizing the value of the things that people already have, right? And just unlocking that, that value there. So I'm excited to see this. I can't wait to see um, uh, a whole bunch of tokens denominating cattle uh, on the Cardano chain, right? That for me would be a great moment. So yeah, you know, it's sort of throwing the question back to you, but my favorite tokenization use case is the thing which that person already has, you know, but does, yeah. doesn't have, uh, hasn't got a liquid market for it. Yeah, integrating just uh, basically everything as also the name of the podcast is into the token economy, I think, right? It, it's hard sometimes to single out the specific one, but it's interesting, you know, the cow example is also something that uh, I had on the show, Jason from Algo Trader, they, they, they live in Switzerland. So they also mentioned that the cow example, so it's, it's funny to see that uh, 
maybe Kepler yeah. is becoming one of the biggest uh, tokenization use cases <laughs> in the future. <laughs> so yeah, and, maybe um, that would be great. That would be great, you know. Yeah, um, it, it would definitely be interesting, and also other um, forms of of livestock potentially. So um, coming to the end of the question. As I know, it is probably also quite hot where you're sitting, right? Um, uh, it, you know, one question I always ask my guests is, and obviously you cannot give a def definite answer to this, but um, it's always interesting to see the different perspectives of my guests. Where do you personally see blockchain in 10 years from now? Um, I see, so to go back to the example I gave about, you know, how people in the industry try to sell you a hand about the plumbing, what I think will happen is that blockchain will be an underlying technology layer, which people don't even realize they're using. And that for me will be, you know, the success where I say the industry has truly become a ubiquitous when people don't even know they're using that. You know, what's that line that, you know, any uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I think blockchain can do that, right? Um, I think that the second layer scaling solutions that we're looking at Cardano now with Hydra, you know, a million transactions per second at marginal, if not zero fees, right? That's something incredible. These are, what, 1,500. So once you start to do that, you're going to enable an entirely new type of economy, micropayments, these things which everyone has ideas about, but no one really knows what the true value of that would be. You know, it's like trying to have posited the existence of a Facebook when we were still doing dial-up internet. It's very difficult. So I think that the moment that we have the second layer scaling solutions and we have usable identity so that we solve some of our KYC issues. And we have these like, you know, by Lego blocks, be able to pay financial products. I think that we're going to see a complete revolution. And you just think about the remittance use case. If you have a million transactions per second that are pretty much zero fees, you've got stable assets to denominate this currency, you know, let's say you're in Kenya, the Kenyan shilling, and you've got this huge pool of liquidity out there why wouldn't you be using that for your remittance business? I mean, it's a, game, it's a game changer. So as a result, I think we'll start to see blockchain start to eat through the traditional financial stack, which is being used for these ginormous businesses like remittance. And uh, people won't even know it's happening. They'll just realize that they're no longer paying usurious rates to transfer money across, uh, across country. So yeah, that's, that's, that's where I see the industry going. Yeah, thanks, John. I think that was a, a great closing statement in that regard. So it was a pleasure having you on, on today's uh, podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, yeah following your, your great work in Africa and uh, generally at, at, in the Cardano ecosystem. And yeah, it was a pleasure to have you here today. Nicholas, thank you so much. That was so much fun and uh, always happy to come back if you'll have me. Yeah, I, I'll, definitely, uh, I'll definitely get back to you in that regard. Thank you. And uh, to our guests, as always, um, you know, any questions you have about IOHK, Cardano, I'm sure you can reach out to John and his team. They will definitely get back to you and, and, and help you, you know, get onboarded to the Cardano ecosystem. I can speak from experience. They're very open and helpful. Then also, you know, any other questions you have in regards to tokenization, feel free to reach out to me anytime. And yeah, looking forward to the next episode. Thank you.